Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. Today, we are finishing our three-week mini-series, um, an interlude during our Not So Minor Prophets series. And we've called this a Not So Minor History. We want to know what is going on in the life of Israel and Judah when the minor prophets are doing their work. They are speaking to the people of Israel, but when we receive them in the Bible, they're not in context. All the prophets are grouped together at the end. And so what we've done is spent three weeks talking about the history that provides that context. It's important history, and it's history that concludes today in the book of Ezra. We are in Ezra chapters 1 through 3 this morning. I'm going to read chapter 1 together um, right now. I'll pray, we'll dive into the sermon, we'll look at all of those chapters in the coming minutes. Ezra chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, all of, of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go to, build, to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were with him, with them, sorry, excuse me, and all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the Lord that, had, that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels, all the vessels of gold and silver, were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And as we look together again at history that may be unfamiliar to us, I pray that we would see you at work. Lord, it is not enough that we merely gain more head knowledge. We want to know you. We want to see you clearly. And I pray that as we dive into your word together this morning, that you would continue the work of transforming us more and more into the image of Christ. Give us ears that are able to hear, hearts willing to obey what you command, 
Encourage us, convict us, strengthen us as disciples of Jesus, we pray. In his name, amen. When I was about eight years old, my parents and I went on a family vacation to the first ever national park, Yellowstone. And uh, If you've never been, Yellowstone National Park is nearly 3,500 acres of natural beauty, wildlife. It's an incredible thing to see. And while we were there, uh, we got to watch the ever-present buffalo kind of wander around. They literally roam through the plains. Um, We went fishing in the Yellowstone Lake. I have a photo of myself holding a fish. What you can't see in that photo is that um, the fish began spawning the moment I got it out of the lake. And so I'm horrified as eggs are just pouring out of this thing. It was it's an experience that I will never forget. Thank you, Mom and Dad, for taking me to Yellowstone. Uh, we saw the Lower Falls. If you've ever been, make sure, or if, you, if you're going to go, make sure you see the Lower Falls. There are these beautiful waterfalls um, that are just powerful, majestic. But what everybody thinks about when it comes to Yellowstone, what comes to mind, are all the geysers that are kind of exploding out of the ground there in a section of the park called the Upper Geyser Basin. Now, this here is a photo of the most famous of those geysers. This is Old Faithful. We got to see that when I was there. And if you were to look online, what do you need to see at Yellowstone? At the top of everybody's list is Old Faithful. Everybody says, you got to go see this thing. And so that's what we did. It's probably one of the most recognizable natural wonders in the whole of the country. Old Faithful in Yellowstone. I remember seeing Old Faithful as a kid, and I'm excited to go, and we get there, and I was a little underwhelmed by it, I'll be honest. And it's not really Old Faithful's fault. It just wasn't the first geyser we'd seen. We'd gone and we'd seen others that were bigger, more powerful, lasted longer. It's not the biggest geyser. It's not the most powerful geyser, and yet it's the most famous The reason it's the most famous, the reason everybody flocks from around the world to go see this geyser is because of its consistency. Old Faithful is named that for a reason. I don't understand the science. I'm not a science guy, but I do know that because of some geographic anomalies, Old Faithful erupts about every 90 minutes. And you, I mean, it is consistent enough, you could basically set your watch to it. Within a few minutes, Old Faithful will erupt every 90 minutes. So people come from all over the world to see Old Faithful, not because of its size, not because of its grandeur, but precisely because of its faithfulness. They're amazed at how consistent this thing is, how faithful this geyser is. See, people are attracted to faithfulness. We believe in it. We love it. Faithfulness is something that we're drawn to. And we're horrified by its opposite, by unfaithfulness. We're so horrified by unfaithfulness, in fact, that unfaithfulness is one of the only federal crimes in the United States that can earn you capital punishment. And we don't call it unfaithfulness. But that's what treason is. It's being unfaithful to your country. 
Unfaithfulness is not something that you can neutrally or even passively, accidentally pursue. It's not something you trip into. It's a choice. And it's an action that demonstrates that choice. You don't accidentally commit treason. Whoops, treason today, my bad. That's that's not what you do. You, You actively pursue this kind of unfaithfulness. You decide that you're going to be unfaithful to the country by actively working against her. You actively commit unfaithfulness against your spouse by engaging in an adulterous relationship. You actively commit unfaithfulness to your company when you whisper company secrets to a competitor. You actively commit unfaithfulness to yourself when you shut down your conscience in order to do something that you know you shouldn't do. Unfaithfulness is an active process. You do this on purpose. You purpose to do something, and you head in the direction of unfaithfulness. But faithfulness is also active. It's just active in the opposite direction. It's also lived out. You practice faithfulness to your country rather than unfaithfulness when you work to better your neighborhood or your community or your fellow citizens. You practice faithfulness to your spouse when you nurture and invest in your marriage with time and with care. You practice faithfulness to your job when you work hard and with excellence. You practice faithfulness to your conscience when you listen to it and pursue the good. The problem is that faithfulness doesn't come naturally to us. Unfaithfulness does. And we see this all around more and more. You hear people rejecting monogamy because they claim it's not natural. Gone are the days of long relationships between an employee and an employer. And for far too many, party faithfulness has eclipsed country faithfulness. When we read the story of Israel's unfaithfulness to the Lord, we tend to shake our heads and go, oh man, how terrible. We're aghast at how unfaithful they are. But if we're honest, we know. We know how something like this could happen. We pretend to shake our heads and say, how could they do this? They've seen the wonders of God, but we know precisely how they can do it because we do the same thing every day. We pursue that same idolatrous unfaithfulness every single day. Every time we give in to sin, every time we refuse to do what God is calling us to do, from serving in the church to loving our neighbors, to caring for the least of these, when we do that, we are unfaithful. So Israel's unfaithfulness shouldn't shock us. We shouldn't be amazed when we read of the unfaithfulness of God's people throughout the Old Testament. What should shock us, what should just blow our minds and fill us with awe, is God's faithfulness to his unfaithful people. This is the awe-inspiring truth. God is always faithful to his people. Always. Always. Even as he was punishing his people for the rampant, ugly unfaithfulness. That's what the exile was. It was punishment for what they had done. For the idolatry. And the the violence and oppression and sexual sin that came out of that idolatry. 
Even in the midst of that punishment, God promised that he was going to bring his people home from exile. He promised that he would even heal the division between north and south that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. That division had defined Israel for centuries, but God promised even in the midst of his judgment of sin that he would bring them home and heal that division. We talked about Jeremiah last week. Well, here's what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 3. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel. That's the south and the north. And together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers as a heritage. Even before they actually go into exile, Jeremiah is promising, north and south will be no more. One day I will bring you home together. And you will be in the land that I gave your forefathers. And that's what he did. After some time in exile, God brought his people home. That's what our text in Ezra is all about. These three chapters that we're going to look at today, they demonstrate in a multitude of ways the generous faithfulness of God to his people. And that faithfulness culminates in the promise of a greater return from exile, a greater journey home. So let's look together at Ezra chapters 1 through 3. We begin in Ezra 1 verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. We just saw that word from Jeremiah. Well, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. We'll look at the proclamation in a moment. But a lot has happened since we left that story last week of the people of God. They had just been sent into exile. The south has now been destroyed. Jerusalem is in ruins. And it's been in ruins this whole time. We are decades later, but Jerusalem has not been rebuilt. It's laying in ruins ever since Nebuchadnezzar's war campaign. And even those who were left behind, we saw that last week, that there were a few, the poor, who were given land and cared for by the Babylonians in ways that God's people had completely neglected. Well, even they had to flee. They fled to Egypt. And the land formerly known as Israel, at this point in history, is a wasteland. It's a wasteland of roaming bandits and tribal strife. But there's also been a major geopolitical shift in the last time that we've been together. We were talking a lot about the Babylonians. Well, now the Babylonians have also fallen. They've fallen to an empire called the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire was led by a king named Cyrus. And he was able to defeat the Babylonians. In one way, his defeat of the Babylonians is a monumental victory in history. In another way, it's actually kind of easy to take over the Babylonians. Let me explain. When the Assyrians, two empires before, when they took over a country, they're the ones who wiped out Israel in the north, when they took over a country, they deported everybody, but then they imported people from all over the Assyrian empire into that land. And they did so intentionally so that you wouldn't know who your neighbors were. They're from different places, different languages, different cultures. They, they basically pour everybody in 
so that there is no identity of who this people are. They're a mishmash of people, and they get to have a new identity, Assyrian. And what that did is it helped solidify their hold on the region. It short-circuited any possible rebellion from a conquered nation because the nation has now been scattered to all these other places. That's how the Assyrians did it. Repopulate everything. Now they're Assyrians and no longer what they were before. The Babylonians did things differently. They weren't interested in importing a bunch of people. They utilized more of a scorched earth policy. So when the Babylonians came in, they destroyed the place and they left it a barren wasteland. They took all the plunder back to Babylonia, the capital, and that helped solidify the security of the capital. And that meant that Babylon grew in unimaginable wealth and power because they're not having to care for people in the lands around them. They can just care for everybody in one place, become rich. They're able to amass power, but it also centralized everything. So that meant that if Cyrus wanted to take Babylon, he didn't have to go on a conquering tour the way Nebuchadnezzar did. When Nebuchadnezzar came down, he had to destroy everything that the Assyrians had rebuilt and repopulated. Cyrus doesn't have to do that. He just has to take the capital. If he can take the capital, he now has the entire Babylonian empire in one victory. And that's precisely what he does. Cyrus conquers Babylonia. The Babylonian empire falls. And now the known world is ruled by the Persians. That happened between last Sunday and this Sunday. Babylonian Empire falls. The Persian Empire is now there under King Cyrus. Now, the Persians, they work differently than both the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They don't do things the same way. Rather than replace a nation's identity the way the Assyrians did or decimate the world the way the Babylonians did, the Persians under Cyrus, they went under a charm offensive. It can be summarized this way. Here's what the Persians would say to a nation they wanted to conquer. You can keep your customs. You can keep your gods. You can keep your land. You can keep the whole of your culture. It's fine. You can keep it all. Here's what we ask. Just show loyalty to Persia. You're all Persians now. That means your taxes will go to us. Some of your men are going to join our military ranks, but nothing much else is going to change. We keep you safe, you keep your culture, we get your taxes in return. Or we wipe you off the face of the map. One or the other. You can understand why when the Persians took over, most people just embraced them willingly. Because not much is changing. They get to keep the way that they worship. They get to keep their land. They get to keep their culture. The Persians just added that to their own pantheon of gods, their own cultural melting pot. But it begs a question. That's how the Persians do things. The Babylonians had done the opposite. They'd wiped everybody out. So what do the Persians do with these lands that have been decimated? They now have the the, the Babylonian Empire as their own. What do they do? Well... Cyrus had to send them all back. He needed to send people back to those lands so that they could be populated and be populated by happy people who were happy with the Persian Empire 
And so he takes all the various exiled peoples that the Babylonians had removed from their land, and he sends them all home. But he's sending them home to wastelands, which means he needs to send them home in a way they're going to want to actually go back. So when Cyrus speaks, he co-opts the language of these various people. He co-opts the language of these various gods. He play-acts. He pretends to be a follower of that God, doing that God's bidding, and says, now I'm sending you back. He doesn't just do this for the Jewish people. He does this for all kinds of nations that the Babylonians had conquered. So Cyrus, he pens a letter, and here's what the letter says. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and with gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So Cyrus sends back whoever wants to go back. More than that, he promises to send them back with supplies for the journey, supplies to rebuild the nation, supplies for the reestablishment of Israelite religion. For Cyrus, this is, this is just good politics. They're going to love you for this. For God, this was something much more. You see, God had disciplined his people by sending them into, exiles, into, into exile at the hand of another nation. He'd used a pagan nation to send his people into exile. And now God was going to bring his people home at the hands of a pagan nation. He was using other pagan nations to do the work of disciplining and returning his people. He does this so that there is no way whatsoever that God's people could claim they went back home because of something they had done. They don't go back home because of their own military might. They didn't defeat the Persian Empire. They don't go home because their great politicians were able to convince Cyrus of what to do. No, this is what Cyrus does. He does this of his own volition. The people of God weren't going home because of them. They were only going home because God was making it happen. He had disciplined them for their sins through the Assyrians and Babylonians. And now he was showing mercy and faithfulness to his people by bringing them home at the hands of the Persians. God is at work through Cyrus, whether Cyrus is aware of it or not. This is all politispeak from Cyrus. What he doesn't realize is how true it is. God is using Cyrus to bring his people home. But God didn't only act through Cyrus. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, with costly wares, Besides all that was freely offered, Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Notice what the text says there in verse 5. 
Then rose up everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go. This was God at work, not only in Cyrus's political machinations, but also in the hearts of his people. It would have taken an act of God to get people to leave the Persian Empire and go back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's a wasteland. They're, they're leaving the infrastructure, the relative security of dwelling there in Babylonia, dwelling in the former Babylonian Empire and the, now the Persian Empire. They're leaving comfort, safety, infrastructure for what is at this point a dangerous wasteland there in Jerusalem with no infrastructure at all. They have to rebuild everything. There's no wall around the city. There's no homes ready to move into. The temple is long gone. There's nothing there. But God promised to bring his people home, and so he works in their hearts to make it so. God is the one who is doing this. He works through Cyrus, but he also works in the hearts of his people to bring them home. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Prince of Judah, he is a Babylonian who is now going to be in charge of Judah. So they don't, they're, they're not ruling themselves. They're part of the Persian Empire. Sheshbazar is going to be the guy who is in charge. This is the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Now, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Yeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Bena. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 male and female singers. That's about 50,000 people who go home from exile. And that's what the entirety of chapter 2 is, actually. If you were to look at chapter 2 in your Bible, it is just a list of names and how many people came from each family to go back home. And we decided, in our love for you, to not read through chapter 2. That would have been brutal for me and even worse for you to listen to. Now, just one little note, because again, history is important. We're trying to draw the whole picture. You notice here two names that maybe are recognizable to you, Nehemiah and Mordecai. These are not the Nehemiah and Mordecai that appear elsewhere. Um, Nehemiah won't go back to Israel for maybe 150 years. Um, about 150 years later, he'll go back and build the wall. It's a different Nehemiah. Also, we know this isn't Mordecai because the Esther and Mordecai story doesn't happen for about 100 years. Um, the people who are living in Persia, who are about to be destroyed by Haman, that all happens during the reign of Ashuerus or Xerxes. And Xerxes is two kings, well, more like four kings after Cyrus. So... Those aren't the same people, 
different Mordecai, different Nehemiah. That's for free. We didn't want to read all the names, but we also didn't want to miss the point. The names matter. The people who went home matter to God. This is who he's being faithful to. He's not being faithful to a theoretical nation. He has been being faithful to actual people who are actually coming home. God worked through the political aims of three different kingdoms, worked in the hearts of his people to discipline them, to punish them for idolatry, but then to fulfill his promises to bring them home. This is a lot of work, using three different empires like this. Why would he do it? Well, it's simple. It's because God is always faithful to his people. Always. No exceptions. He never leaves or forsakes his people even when he is disciplining them for their sins. And what was true then is true now. God is faithful to you. may not feel like it. You, you may feel like God is actually against you somehow. Like he's actively working against you, but that's just not true. God is faithful to his people. And when you, he adopted you into his family through Christ, when you became a citizen of the kingdom of God by grace through faith, then he promised an eternal faithfulness that would never be frustrated by anything in this world, even our own sin. So I have one of my favorite verses, and one that I say here often in Beacon. It's 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful, faithful and just to to forgive us of our sins. He's faithful. And God has proven his faithfulness time and time again, which means you can trust him. You can bring whatever burden you have, whatever sin is weighing you down, and you can lay it before his throne of grace and experience his faithfulness to you. How is this faithfulness possible? And how could the God of the universe, a holy and righteous God, act in such faithfulness towards unfaithful and sinful people like you and like me? How is this possible? It's possible through the sacrifice of another, one who is blameless, without blemish or spot. Let's look at Ezra 3. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Yeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by, a, by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord." First thing they do when they get back, they build the altar. That's job number one. Before they do anything else, before they even build homes to live in, they build an altar and they begin to sacrifice. And they 
do the Feast of Booths because in the Feast of Booths, you don't live in homes. You live in tents. And so they didn't have to wait to have a bunch of construction projects before they began to sacrifice. They have no identity any longer. They needed one. And they built an altar. That's because God's people are constituted around sacrifice. The centerpiece of Israel's identity wasn't their borders, their laws, their ethnicity, their culture. That was not the center of who they were. Because none of that really existed anymore. No, Israel found national identity somewhere else. They found it in their collective need to be absolved of their sins. That's what sacrifice was all about. It was about the blood of a lamb covering the sins of the people that they might be found guiltless before the Lord. Without sacrifice, without repentance leading to forgiveness, the people of God weren't a people at all. God's people are constituted around sacrifice. Again, that remains true today. It is the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, that makes us a people. If not for him, we're nobody. We might as well cut the lights, lock the doors, find something else to do with brief and pointless lives. It's all we've got. If not for the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without the sacrifice of Christ, without the cross, we don't exist as a people. The cross is everything to us. It's at the cross that we find forgiveness of sins. It's at the cross that we find the defeat of hell and death. It's at the cross that we find our identity as the people of God. Because that death, that sacrifice, that sin-defeating act, it changes everything. It's a death that gives way to life. For the cross doesn't stand alone. No, on the other side of the cross is an empty tomb. And that empty tomb is a joyful declaration that Jesus Christ is victorious. That his death defeated death once and for all. And now we are a people with hope, life, and love. We are a people built around a hideous sacrifice that gives way to glorious resurrection power. It's because of this cross-paved path to life that we have eternal hope. And that eternal hope was glimpsed even at the time of this return from exile. Ezra 3, starting in verse 6, From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Josedach, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. 
They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Yeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel, where they sang responsively praising, giving thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses Old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. The people shouted with a great shout. The sound was heard far away. The people had an altar. Sacrifices had resumed. But they needed a place to worship. The temple needed to be rebuilt. And during the exile, the prophet Ezekiel had promised that upon returning, there would be a grand temple built. And his vision of this temple was even more beautiful than Solomon's temple. This is massive, glorious temple. And Solomon's temple was glorious. He didn't do anything small. And that temple of Solomon, it was fondly remembered by everyone who'd lived before the exile. And some of those elders were still alive. And they had heard Ezekiel prophesying that an even greater temple was going to come. So they're excited about this promise, about a great and glorious temple that all the nations are going to want to come towards. And then construction started. And then the foundation was laid. And it was nowhere near what Ezekiel had promised. Worse yet, it wasn't even close to the temple that had been there in the time of Solomon. This thing was small, not glorious, not majestic, not wonderful. And so the elders wept. There was joy as well. The foundation was laid. The temple was going to be rebuilt. The people would worship God again in Jerusalem. Herod would come one day, and he would build this glorious temple that would also be destroyed. But it wasn't what the elders had dreamed of through the exile. This wasn't what they were waiting on. They wanted Ezekiel's vision of this beautiful, massive temple, and instead they got this. So they wept. And it must have caused questions. What did this mean? Does this mean Ezekiel got it wrong? Did Ezekiel lie to them and give them false hope? What's going on here? Or did it mean something else entirely? Eventually that temple would be rebuilt, though that would take many more years, and the warnings of the prophet Haggai, he's a prophet we're going to meet in a few weeks, he had to warn the people to make sure that the temple did get built. Finally, Ezra would come on the scene. Ezra hasn't shown up yet. He won't show up till about chapter 7, about 70 years later. Finally, Ezra comes on the scene. He reestablishes temple worship back into some semblance of what it was before. 
It would be decades more after that before Nehemiah would come to Jerusalem and lead the rebuilding of the wall. And throughout this process, we would shake our heads and say, how is this possible? But we know how this is possible because we do it all the time. Throughout this process, the people would be tempted to fall back into their old ways. So God's going to send two more prophets, Zechariah and Malachi. Those two prophets warned the people that selfishness was actually threatening the stability of this newly built temple and the newly built Jerusalem. They needed to be focused on faithfulness to God and his faithfulness to them rather than unfaithfully focusing on their own wants and desires. But then after Malachi, God would fall silent. For about 400 or so years, there'd be nothing more. The people of Israel would be bounced from one empire to the next until Rome finally comes in and establishes what looks like an immortal empire. And still, the glory of Ezekiel wouldn't come. There are some who would say that Herod's temple is the fulfillment of what Ezekiel promised, but... But even that falls short. The glory of Ezekiel never came until Jesus came on the scene. And when Jesus came on the scene, he taught people that God was building a temple, but that this was a temple not made with human hands. That Ezekiel hadn't lied to them, that he wasn't wrong, but that the people were just too short-sighted. That one day God's temple kingdom would be established on earth as it is in heaven, as the King of kings and Lord of lords would come in triumph and usher in a reign of eternal life and goodness. Jesus himself would usher in the kingdom. And through his death and resurrection, the people of God would be welcomed into a kingdom that would never fall, and the throne of David That throne would be established in the midst of a garden in the midst of a new Jerusalem and would stand forever and there would be no need of a temple for Christ is with his people and we are the temple of the living God. But the people couldn't see it at the time. You see, God's people were waiting for a greater return. They thought it was just over when they came out of Babylonia under the Persians. But they were still waiting. They were still in exile even as they were home because they needed a greater return from a greater exile. And in many ways, we're still living in that exile right now. Because we are away from our home in a country that is far away. And we are waiting for our home to descend from heaven and for our king to welcome us into glory. That's what we wait for. As the people of God, we are a waiting people. We're waiting for a greater return from exile that requires the forgiveness of sin and the destruction of all that is sinful and wicked. All brokenness, all sickness, all evil eradicated when we finally go home, when heaven finally comes to us and we receive in a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem, our home when we finally return from exile. We are a people who are waiting. But we do not wait like those who have no hope. We wait with confidence because God is always faithful to his people. 
Time and again, God has proven his faithfulness. He proved his faithfulness to the people of Israel by bringing them back to Jerusalem. He proved his faithfulness to the nations, the life, work, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he proves his faithfulness to us every day through the gift of his Holy Spirit who remains with us, who abides in us. Even when we grieve him through our sin, he does not leave. But he holds us fast because he is faithful to us. Our God is a faithful God. We're called to respond to his faithfulness with faithfulness of our own. To pursue God with the whole of our lives because he has given us all in Christ. He's given us all. And he calls us to follow him. On the darkest of days, even as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, remember, God is faithful. He's proven it. He proves it still. One day we will stand in a new Jerusalem, in that new heaven and new earth, and we will sing of the faithfulness that has won us eternal life. And our eyes will be fixed on a Savior whose name is faithful and true. Let's pray. God, we thank you that though we are so often unfaithful, though we are just like the people of Israel long ago who see your work and yet turn away to other gods, other sins, other appetites, God, you are faithful. You are faithful to us because you love us. And you have promised in Christ that you will never leave us or forsake us. You promise to always be with us by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, there are days where we wonder, where the pain is too great, where the grief is too strong, where the illness too devastating. Lord, we wonder in light of our own sin, would you really forgive us? Would you really be faithful to us even after we've done that? And your answer in Christ is a resounding yes. You are faithful to your people because of the blood that washes away our sins, because of the resurrection that gives us new life, because of the gift of the Holy Spirit who holds us fast until you return or until we meet you in glory. You are faithful to your people. You keep your promises. You always have. You always will. And so, Lord, we trust you with the whole of our lives. We trust you in the midst of grief. We trust you in the midst of pain. We trust you in the midst of triumph and of joy. Because we know, Lord, that this isn't our home. That we're waiting to go home. We're waiting for home to come to us. When your kingdom finally descends. And we worship you face to face. We long for that day. Help us in the waiting. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.